1: which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is the deal. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: Thirteen days of testimony from undercover agents, an informant, and two co-defendants who pleaded guilty. There were also the secretly recorded conversations, violent social media posts, and chat messages. Yet in a stunning defeat for the government, the jury failed to convict any of the four defendants in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. U.S. Attorney Andrew Bird said he believed the prosecution presented a strong case.
3: Obviously, we're uh, disappointed uh, with the outcome. Uh, we thought we had uh, get the jury to convict uh, beyond reasonable doubt based on the evidence we put forward. But we still believe in the jury system.
0: The defense lawyers portrayed the men as unsophisticated weekend warriors, often stoned on marijuana and prone to wild talk, who were entrapped by the FBI in its sting operation. Michael Hills represented Brandon Caserta, who was acquitted. Our governor was never in any danger, and uh, I think the jury, even though they didn't get all of it,
2: uh, you know, they smelled enough of it. I think what the FBI did is unconscionable is what I think. And I think the jury just sent them a message loud and clear.
0: My guest is Matthew Schneider, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and a partner at Honigman. Many were stunned by the verdict. Were you?
2: I was like a lot of people were, and I'm a former prosecutor. I work as a defense attorney, and prosecutors and defense attorneys alike were stunned at this, and they said that openly. It was surprising. The government put forth a very strong case. And it's not the result that a lot of people predicted.
0: Two were acquitted. They were hung on another two. What were the differences that they would acquit some and hang on others?
2: There were some significant differences. The two that received the hung verdict, those were viewed as kind of the ringleaders of this. And the jury found that there was not enough evidence to convict them. The two that were acquitted, As for those defendants, those were the defendants who did not actually go to the governor's house and scope it out. There was an event where people went to the governor's house or residence and kind of watched it, fouled around the driveways and used night vision goggles and tried to scope out the place. Well, those two defendants, they didn't participate in that. And that might have been a dividing line that the jury felt that they should be acquitted.
0: Daniel Harris, one of the two acquitted, took the stand in his own defense, a risky move that apparently worked. What did you see in his testimony?
2: Well, we don't know if that's what worked or not, because the jury hasn't said. The jurors went out and they didn't speak to anybody. So we don't know if it was because they believed in the entrapment theory of the defense or that they believed in the defense theory that these guys were just kind of making it up and big talkers. Or that they were kind of, you know, stoned and not very sophisticated and not clever enough to actually do this. We're not sure. We do know that Harris was acquitted of the weapons charge, which was possession of a short barrel rifle. And that charge seemed to be that there was plenty of evidence for that. And for the jury to acquit him of that seems quite striking because there was plenty of proof that he had the gun. It's not like the kidnapping plot where there was discussion. Either you had the gun or you didn't, and they found that he didn't.
0: And was he arrested with the gun or not?
2: There was a lot of discussion about the type of gun it was and the, the position it was and whether or not it was in pieces at the time. But, you know, a weapon, even if it's in separate pieces, that, you know, the receiver, if the receiver is what you have that's still uh, classified as a weapon under federal law, but there was explanation given in this testimony that it was in different pieces and perhaps that's something that the the jury took into account.
0: So there were thirteen days of evidence, undercover FBI agents, an FBI informant, two co defendants who pleaded guilty. There were secretly recorded conversations, violent social media posts, et cetera, et cetera. So it seemed like the prosecution had a lot of evidence. Where did it fail?
2: Well, they did have a lot of evidence, but if you're going to be looking at this case in the future as to how this case was brought, it will be a big question about, did they have to take down this case now? Did they have to end the investigation when they did? And what would have been the result if instead of ending the investigation, they would have continued? Would they have developed, for example, evidence from the defendants that they had set a firm date for the kidnapping, which did not happen in this case? But if they would have kept the investigation alive, Maybe they would have gotten more evidence to convince the jury. Now, we all understand that investigations sometimes have to be taken down for officers' safety and things like that. But still, that's going to be a very nagging question in the eyes of the Justice Department for many cases moving forward. Will
0: you just go back a bit and explain when they decided to end the FBI investigation? At what point?
2: They ended it as the defendants were walking into a restaurant to have lunch. Okay, so that appears to be an innocuous time, but it was a time when law enforcement could get together and it was an open area where they could all swoop in and have a safe arrest.
0: That left
2: out some evidence that I think might have come forth if they would have continued the recording devices and continued the conversations.
0: The FBI ending the operation before they had evidence of the defendants making definitive plans to kidnap the governor. How did that help the defense?
2: That is the defense argument. And they're saying, look, this is all a bunch of talk. They didn't have any actions and there's nothing that the government can show for it. Now, look, there's still two defendants still to be retried. And there are two defendants who pleaded guilty. And when you plead guilty in federal court, you go into the courtroom and you say, I'm pleading guilty because I am guilty. And those defendants testified and they said that they were guilty of this conspiracy. They did commit the crime and they were testifying so that they could help the prosecution and hopefully get a sentence reduction.
0: That makes it even more surprising that the jury didn't believe them.
2: Oftentimes, jurors don't like cooperators. They don't like people who were once on one side and then switched to the other side. The defense painted them as liars who were only trying to get a sentence reduction, and that happens in every case. This case also, however, had undercover FBI informants. There was an informant. There was an agent. There was plenty of testimony here and plenty of evidence. But the defense theory, again, we don't know because we don't know what the jury has to say, but it appears that it worked very favorable in the defense's mind.
0: The lawyer for Brandon Caserta blamed overly aggressive FBI informants. He said, I think what the FBI did is unconscionable, and I think the jury just sent them a message loud and clear. Is that the case? Because they hung on two of the defendants.
2: Well, if they were loud and clear, unconscionable, you would have had four acquittals. And we didn't have that. What we had is a jury saying, I can find these two who were not present at the stakeout of the governor's house, not guilty. But I'm not sure, and we can't reach a verdict on the other two. And we also, as I indicated, had two people pleaded guilty. So that really remains to be seen. The government is going to go back to square one and try this case again, which is not unusual. I mean, John Gotti, for example, was tried four times by the Justice Department. So it's not surprising that they would give this another shot with a new jury, fresh instructions, fresh arguments.
0: Do you think the prosecution will try to present the case differently?
2: Yes, I do, because the jury asked a lot of questions about the weapons involved and the explosives. Well, jurors don't ask questions if they understand all the evidence, and the presentation was flawless. They only ask questions if they don't understand what just took place. And so I'm certain that the government will be doing a closer explanation about the bombs and that type of evidence in this next retrial.
0: The jury pool was drawn from a 22-county region in western and northern Michigan that is largely rural, Republican, and conservative. Is it possible that the prosecution just can't get a jury that will convict in this case?
2: Well, the prosecution picked a jury along with the defense. And certainly some of the members of the jury, a lot of them actually owned weapons. A lot of them expressed, you know, some mistrust for government entities, but not overly so that would kick them off the jury pool. But I think you have a lot of people in this jury pool who don't like the government. And, you know, you have a constitutional right to dislike Governor Whitmer or even hate her. That's your constitutional right. People hate her. People love her. The fact is, is what no one should take from this verdict is that it's okay to do harm to a public official because it's not okay to threaten to kidnap Governor Whitmer. The only thing you can take from this verdict is that the government failed to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: Some politicians have expressed fears about these acquittals. So, for example, Michigan State Representative Lori Pahutsky tweeted that a man who threatened to kill her in 2020 was acquitted. Quote, the next time you ask why we can't get good people to run for office, consider today's verdict. This won't be taken seriously until someone dies. Do these acquittals send out a message that you're not going to be held accountable?
2: That's going to be a great question after the retrial of this case, because these two defendants are still out there. Now, if those defendants are found not guilty, a lot of questions will be asked about the safety of public officials. But we're not quite there yet, so I don't think we're quite in the position to make those calculations or conclusions so far.
0: Did you see a great difference in the way the defense attorneys handled the case?
2: Each of the defense attorneys took a different, a slightly different approach. Some of them really hammered on the fact that they were government informants, and the government informants and the FBI was driving this case from the beginning to the end. Maybe that's what the jury believed and caught on to. Other times, defense attorneys really hit on the issue that The defendants were not competent. They raised a bunch of other things that they could do to the governor other than kidnap her, such as that they would cut all the trees down between Indiana and Michigan to prevent law enforcement from getting there fast enough. Well, it's really fanciful. They also talked about tying a balloon to the governor and toting her away. No one really believes that that could happen. So the defense theory was if they're going to make up those type of theories that are really impossible— Kidnapping the governor is just another one of those theories, and it shouldn't be believed. And that was part of the arguments made in this case.
0: I guess this does show that the jury really considered each of the defendants individually.
2: They certainly did. And if they hadn't, this would have been a quick verdict, but they came back over several days. They took a lot of time. They asked questions that were very specific to the defendants charged with the weapons, uh, for example. And it looks like they did deliberate and take a lot of time. Of course, you know, when the jury came back and they couldn't reach a verdict, the expressions on their faces was certainly one of frustration. And if you have to sit inside a room with 12 people that you don't know for five days straight and you're disagreeing with them, it has to be very frustrating.
0: Definitely. So How big a blow would you say this is to the Justice Department, which has made domestic terror a priority after January 6th?
2: It certainly is not helpful, right? The Justice Department definitely wanted to have convictions here. They were touting the security and strength of their evidence. It didn't work out for them. One thing that you should think about as well is it's not just what they said about the evidence, but when the evidence was played in court, It came out a little bit differently. For example, some of these threats toward Governor Whitmer, you know, when they actually played the tape of the recording, the defendants were laughing. We don't laugh if you're serious about that. And so there was some reason to believe that there was some joking going on about this. Of course, there were other times when very sinister things were said about hurting the governor and no one was laughing at all. So on both sides, each side had some arguments there.
0: Is there anything the government can do on the retrial to make the witnesses, the informants more believable?
2: Well, they can't go back and change the evidence. And what's done is done. Is because this case was taken down at this particular time with these particular defendants involved. And so that can't be changed. They can, however, have different questions or additional questions asked for potential jurors. Some of the jurors in this trial were asked very, very little. In fact. One of the last people into the jury box, I think he was asked two questions. And once I heard that and I was listening to the testimony, I thought, who the heck is this guy? We don't even really know who this person is. And now he's on the jury. I don't know if he favors the government or he favors the defense. If you were a trial lawyer, you would step up and say, hold on a second, Your Honor. I've got a few more questions. And I think we will probably see that on both sides in the future.
0: Does this showcase the difficulties the government has with infiltrating right-wing groups and developing cases without infringing on First and Second Amendment rights?
2: It certainly does. And this is a real fine line because it's not the first time that the government has brought a case that is similar to this, where it's charged people with government extremism and they've found acquittals at the end of the road. So, Yes, it's certainly something that the government has to take into account that people have the First Amendment, they have the Second Amendment, and in fact, this was covered in the trial. When you are making a bomb for fun, because some people do that, and you're, you're just making explosives, that's not necessarily a weapon of mass destruction. But there was testimony about the fact that when you take a bomb or an explosive device and you put items in it like BBs or pennies or things that can fragment and injure people, That's a different type of weapon. So all of these things the government will be looking at in the future. And it is truly a balancing between knowing when you're prosecuting somebody who's done wrong and prosecuting somebody improperly because they've just exercised their First or Second Amendment rights.
0: Matthew, has it been decided that they're going to retry them? Or is there any question about it?
2: It hasn't been formally decided. But what always happens after this is the judge enters a verdict of mistrial And that hasn't yet happened on the docket sheet, but the judge will do that. And then the judge will set a scheduling date for when the next dates are. The current U.S. attorney in the Western District indicated that we have more work to do and we've got another trial coming up. So he's telegraphed that. And I would think, given the Justice Department's past record on retrials, that there's really no reason that they wouldn't retrial this case again, given the fact that the jury returned a split verdict, and open the door for that to happen.
0: What kind of message would it send out if the government didn't retry these two?
2: It would show that they're giving up on the case. And, you know, some in the defense bar would say, that's good. They're realizing the conclusion that the FBI and the government overreached, and they should give up. And certainly that is an argument that has been put forth. But another argument is is that they have another ability to talk with the jurors, now this time only with two defendants. And that will be easier than with four defendants. It'll be less confusing. There'll be less evidence in the record. They'll be able to focus only on these two folks and then uh, let the chips fall where they may.
0: Thanks, Matthew. That's Matthew Schneider, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and a partner at Honigman. President Biden is coming off the victory of Ketanji Brown Jackson's confirmation to the Supreme Court with a backlog of lower court vacancies that don't have a pending nominee and the midterm elections ahead that could end the Democrats' narrow Senate majority. Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. Start by telling us how quickly Biden moved to fill judicial vacancies in his first year in office.
1: In his first 12 months in office, Biden outpaced every president since John F. Kennedy with his appointments. Uh, He moved at a really record pace here, uh, even outpacing Trump, who definitely made judicial nominations a, a priority. So Biden got off to a really good start in year one. In year two, he now had a Supreme Court vacancy to fill, and that took up a lot of time for the White House and for the Senate to deal with. So now Biden is looking at a lot of vacancies to fill. Uh, this year. And that's made a little bit more difficult with midterms right around the corner.
0: Has Biden made any new lower court nominations since Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement?
1: Yes. On on February 2nd, he made just one nomination to a circuit court. But really, nominations have been few and far between during that process. Uh, So now Biden is looking at Several vacancies at the circuit court level, about 19, that don't have a nomination pending. So he definitely has an opportunity to make an impact there looking toward the end of the year.
0: Was it deliberate that he didn't make any new nominations or was it because of the whole process of having a Supreme Court nomination and shepherding that through?
1: I think the Supreme Court nomination takes up a lot of oxygen in the room. But if, if Biden wants to make an impact on lower court nominations, new nominations are going to have to come from the White House here pretty soon to give the Senate nominations to work on before midterms kind of take over and, and take up a lot of uh, senators time when they're when they're at home campaigning.
0: So let's talk about how many openings there are. There are three seats on the 9th and 1st Circuit. This is without a nominee. Two seats on the 1st, 2nd, 4th, 5th, and 7th, and one seat on the 3rd, 6th, 10th, and D.C. Circuit. That's a lot of seats. Is that just waiting for the three months for Jackson's nomination to come through, or did they slow down before that?
1: So these have been building up, definitely. These didn't just occur during uh, Jackson's nomination and prior's announcement that he would retire. Um, but it is building up now. And uh, some of these have built up during that time period. So now this is this is what the White House is really going to be looking to toward the end of this year.
0: Tell us about the most high profile vacancy is Jackson's seat on the D.C. Circuit. And there's already one nominee in place there. Tell us about that nominee first.
1: So the nominee in place there already is Michelle Child. She's a South Carolina district judge, federal judge um, in South Carolina. And she was being considered, uh, if you remember, as a candidate for the Supreme Court. Uh, they, they paused her nomination process. She was actually going to have a hearing. The, the Judiciary Committee had planned to have her uh, have a hearing. And uh, when she was under consideration for the seat, they paused that. So her nomination will be one of the circuit nominations the Judiciary Committee can address when it comes back after, after recess. Uh, but then Biden also has another opportunity on, on the D.C. Circuit, and that's Katondi Brown-Jackson's seat on the D.C. Circuit. Her elevation opens up another vacancy, and he now has Two seats he can he can fill on on that court, which is often seen as the second highest because it it involves a lot of disputes involving agencies and Congress, and it's it's seen as a very important court.
0: Some groups are already posturing and making suggestions about what they want to see on that court.
1: Right. We just had a
0: process where
1: we were considering someone for that seat, and a lot of groups were. Making suggestions before Childs was nominated about who they would like to see in in that kind of a role. I I reported in September that Deepak Gupta, who is the founder of a boutique appellate firm, um, and Carla Gilbride, who's a senior attorney at uh, Public Justice, were both thought to be under consideration for that vacancy. Ultimately, Child was nominated, but given that they just considered nominees for the seat, if there was anybody that was considered for that seat, this that might be someone that they think about for this time around as well. I, I spoke to a couple of progressive groups, and you know they would really like to see someone who maybe brings a, a different type of diversity to the court than Child does. Child was criticized by progressives during that uh, process of considering her for the Supreme Court for. Her representation of employers and some of these progressive groups would like to see someone maybe with appellate practice or or work in administrative law, work representing consumer interests. So those are some areas that are being talked about as, as potential background characteristics or experience for Biden's pick.
0: Madison, who is doing the selecting of these nominees? So, The D.C. Circuit is unique in
1: the fact that there's no senators that are attached to D.C. So the White House doesn't have to deal with senators' interests. Now, at the circuit level, that hasn't been the practice for several years now. During the Trump administration, Republicans in the Senate stopped treating home state senator support as a veto on nominees. So that hasn't been the case at the circuit level for a few years now. But the D.C. Circuit has always been that way. And, you know, even if the White House were reaching out to courtesy, it's not something that happens at the D.C. Circuit level just because there aren't senators there. So they really have, you know, kind of a, a blank slate here in terms of who they could select for, for the seat.
0: And there's some pressure to appoint the circuit's first Hispanic as well? Correct. Yeah. Um, the Mexican-American
1: Legal Defense and Education Fund has forwarded names or forwarded names to Biden for Judge David Taitle's seat, which is the seat that Michelle Childs was nominated to. But now that there's another opening, uh, you know, they would like to see the the court's first Hispanic appointed to to that seat, too. So that's another element for, for the administration to be considering here.
0: The Judiciary Committee is split, 11 Republicans, 11 Democrats. Are Republicans causing delays when they don't vote for the nominees
1: Yes, there are a few nominees right now who are going to require a discharge petition on their nominations. And we just saw this with Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination as well. This means the committee deadlocks and then Schumer files a discharge motion. And then that vote on the discharge motion is something that happens in the full Senate. So instead of having two votes on your nomination, closer to end debate, and the final confirmation vote, you end up having three votes on the floor. So it just takes up a little bit more time. But ultimately, these nominees can get confirmed.
0: Since time seems to be of the essence now, do the people you've talked to think that it's possible for Biden to fill these 19 Circuit Court seats plus the pending ones before the midterms?
1: Yeah, I talked to John Collins, who's a professor at George Washington University, who focuses on tracking judicial nominations. And he told me that He thinks that there is an opportunity for Biden to have a year like he had in in 2021. But nominating people uh, as soon as possible is going to be a really important piece of that and making sure that there are nominees in the pipeline for the Senate to consider.
0: The Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin said that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has his hands full with the 16 District and Appeals Court nominees awaiting votes on the Senate floor. So, That procedural issue with six of them really takes up a lot of time on the Senate floor.
1: It does. Each of these votes takes up real hours of the Senate's time. And uh, Chairman Durbin told me as much. Schumer has his hands full in terms of of getting these votes scheduled and, and, and the hours that that will take when they come back from recess. And then Durbin in committee has about eight nominees to consider. But after those eight nominees, he will have run out of his list from the White House, which is why the White House nominating more people to be seats is so important.
0: Let's talk about the the circuits that could flip.
1: Yeah. So Biden has one opportunity here to split uh, a circuit, to change the balance on, on the circuit. So the third circuit, there is one Republican appointee leaving that court. If Biden replaces that appointee with his own, the circuit will be split 7-7. Seven, seven. So it will shift the balance there from a Republican-appointed majority to a split court, an evenly divided court between Republican and Democratic appointees. And I should make sure to note that party of appointing president isn't always an exact proxy for a judge's ideology, but it is one of the only indicators that we have. So it can be helpful for judging how something like en banc Rehearing hearing will, will go when the entire court is is deciding an issue.
0: The circuits that are now Republican-majority are the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, and the 11th. That's correct. Does it appear as if the midterms, if the Republicans take back the Senate, how difficult is it going to be for Biden to get his nominees through?
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that is really the, what is keeping people moving. The progressive groups that I've I've spoken to, or groups that watch judicial nominations, professors that watch judicial nominations, really say that that is the important factor here. Because if if the Senate changes hands, there's a, a very high likelihood that. Um, nominations are gonna become much more difficult for the administration. And and Republicans have, have promised as much. Lindsey Graham kind of alluded to this during Jackson's vote in the committee. He said the process that the Democrats started will rear its head if Republicans are in charge and promised they would talk about judges differently. You know, that obviously remains to be seen what, what that would look like, but we can use the Obama administration as kind of a proxy, and Republicans really stymied Obama's judicial nominations efforts, and that definitely could happen with, with Biden as well. So it's been something that we've been talking about for Biden's entire administration of how much could they get done in these two years before midterms threaten Democrats' slim Senate majority.
0: I didn't understand what Graham was really saying, because, look, as you say, the Republicans, President Obama's nominations, I didn't understand what he was complaining about.
1: Right. Well, I mean, this confirmation process for Jackson definitely brought up a lot of the woes of the confirmation process in the past. And it seems like maybe in the heat of the moment, this comment was was brought up. Um, An interesting thing to note, though, is that Graham has been pretty supportive of Biden's judicial nominees uh, in in committee and on on the Senate floor. So whether or not that would change if Republicans are in control uh, would be a a really interesting uh, change for, for Graham in terms of the fact that he has supported a lot of the nominees while, while Democrats have, have been controlling the Senate.
0: As you know, he supported Judge Jackson for her nomination to the D.C. Circuit. I have no idea what happened to make him so bitter in the meantime.
1: This is the first time I've seen Graham ask questions all year. He doesn't come to judicial nominations hearings. So he typically votes uh, by proxy when the meetings come around. And so it was pretty weird for the first time to see him in committee questioning a nominee. And it happens to be a Supreme Court nominee a year into Biden's administration. And it just is a huge contrast to
0: the voting pattern
1: that I've seen. So it was really interesting. And I'm just as curious about the motives as everybody else.
0: Thanks, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law Reporter Madison Alder. Impossible Foods' meat-free burgers are becoming a staple in U.S. restaurants and grocery stores. Now for the first time, a lawsuit will test Impossible Foods' patented technology in court. My guest is Leonard Svensson of Birch, Stewart, Colash & Birch. Tell me about this huge portfolio of patents that Impossible Foods has.
3: Well, they have a large portfolio. I think it's still the biggest patent portfolio of any of the players in this uh, cultured meat, laboratory meat market, uh, covers various different aspects of the product. They've got patents that are directed and patent applications, some that are still pending, that are directed to a meat product itself, to parts of the manufacturing process. But I think what distinguishes them from other companies is they have multiple patents and patent applications still pending, directed to the meat product itself. And it's all around the uh, key aspect of their meat, which is this heme-containing protein. And they claim they've developed that. They've isolated the purpose for it, isolated the compound, and they're using it in their product. And that's what gives the meat, this artificial or cultured laboratory meat, that's what gives it the texture and taste and smell of real meat. So, again, that's what distinguishes them from, I think, all of the other players in the field is they have some patent protection around a key ingredient, and then they can develop product patents around that key ingredient.
0: Is that what you refer to as its crown jewel?
3: Yes. Yeah, because if you compare their patent portfolio to others sort of in the field, most of them are focused on process parameters. There may be some particular techniques that they use to make the meat. They may have an attempt to get some claims to the products based on a combination of particular ingredients, but I don't think there's anybody else out there that has one special ingredient that they think distinguishes them from everybody else and that they can use to sort of protect their particular niche in the market.
0: I'd say this is the start of the industry, right? It's growing now. How unusual is it to have a patent dispute at this time?
3: Well, I think it's relatively unusual at this beginning of the technology or the whole industry. Of course, there's lots of startup companies that end up in litigation in various fields, uh, biotechnology, in pharmaceuticals. But at the beginning of the industry itself, I think this is kind of unusual. If you compare it to let's say, CRISPR technology. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's one of the gene editing technologies that's pretty new. And there are fights over who has the rights to the key patents on that technology right now. They're fighting in Europe and they're fighting in the United States over who should get the patents, but you don't see patent infringement litigations against each other. Uh, Same for plant biotechnology. I was involved in that way back when and and until recently plant biotechnology that was used to genetically engineer things like corn and soybean. And it took a while before they got to where they were suing each other over patents. I mean, they were, again, trying to get positions so that they would have, each company would have their own patent portfolio. But to actually have patent infringement suits took a while. Now, part of that might be because in those technologies, the product that would actually go out to the market required more government approval. So like if it was a drug, it would take FDA approval, or if it was genetically engineered corn and soybean, there were uh, Department of Agriculture approvals that you had to go through. So that maybe delayed the time to market, um, whereas these products, they're not as regulated. There's some groups they have to go through, but it's not as regulated. So they're faster to market. And maybe that's probably the reason why you see the litigation so early in the industry is because people are getting to the market pretty quickly. And then people who have patent positions want to protect those markets.
0: They're suing a competitor, Motif Food Works, for infringement. Tell us a little about the lawsuit.
3: Well, Possible Foods has, like we discussed before, they have a, a pretty wide-ranging portfolio of patents and they sued on one particular patent that covers the claims are to a beef replica product and it contains a certain percentage of a heme containing protein and they've sued Motif Foodworks who has just recently come out with a product started promoting it and commercially selling the product and they sued Motif for infringement of this one patent alleging that it contains a heme containing protein and it contains the other ingredients but really focusing on this heme-containing protein, and part of the evidence that they submitted with their complaint were quotes just from the website of Motif Food Works showing that they're promoting their product as having a heme-containing protein, and then Impossible Foods also enclosed copies of documents from the regulatory paperwork that Motif filed showing that in that paperwork, According to Impossible Foods, they admitted that they contained uh, a heme compound similar to or the same as what's covered by the patent of Impossible Foods. So it's a straight patent infringement suit. It's a pretty standard type of suit.
0: How expensive is this kind of patent litigation?
3: Oh, patent litigation is expensive. Yes. So that's also maybe part of the reason why you don't see it in the young industry is it's expensive. But Impossible Foods is pretty well financed. I mean you can just read from the uh, industry newsletters and such that they're they're well financed, so
0: I guess they're able to afford it,
3: and they hired a big time law firm, well known law firm, so it's it's not cheap for them to bring a lawsuit like this
0: If they win, what effect does it have? If they
3: win, they will get money damages, which at this stage probably would not be that huge of an amount of money total because motif is just getting into the market, so there's probably not that many sales so You might even question at the beginning whether the amount of damages that Impossible Foods could get, whether that amount of damages would equal the cost of bringing the lawsuit. But they could potentially also get an injunction to stop Motif Food Works from selling their products.
0: I mean, does it have an effect on their position in the industry, on the validity of their patents? Is there any broad effect?
3: Well, this heme-containing compound is sort of the crown jewel for Impossible Foods, and I'm sure they want to stop anybody that even uh, alleges that they're using a similar kind of compound. So it would at least send a message out to the industry that they are going to be aggressive in protecting their patent portfolio, and they're going to be aggressive in going after anybody that is using a compound that they think is covered by their patent. So, yes, it would have that kind of an effect. I'm sure it would cause young companies to pause because a young company getting sued for patent infringement, it's expensive for them to defend themselves also. So it's going to give them some pause. How would it affect Impossible Foods' patent portfolio? That's hard to say. Patent portfolio of Impossible Foods right now has not been challenged. Uh, so it would provide an opportunity for somebody to challenge whether the Impossible Foods patents are too broad or whether they really are valid. So it would potentially have that effect, but that would also take Motif having enough money to fight that battle. There's a related patent of Impossible Foods right now in Europe that's under opposition. It's not the corresponding European patent to the one that's in the Impossible Foods lawsuit, but it's related. It's, I don't know what you might want to call it, a cousin. They're connected through a complicated chain of patent applications. And that patent in Europe is... Under opposition, which means the European patent granted, and some company through a law firm filed an opposition. We just don't know what company it is because they filed it just through a law firm. And they attacked the European patent for being in, unpatentable over prior art. It's not saying it's not novel, it's, it's obvious, and for some reasons relating to claim terminology. And the preliminary opinion of the European Patent Office was that the claims were not valid, that they were not novel, and that they were obvious over a bunch of prior art that was submitted. Now, whether that prior art has any effect on the U.S. patent, I don't know. I haven't studied it carefully. The European patent is somewhat broader than the U.S. patent of Impossible Foods, but you can see that there's potentially a similar line of attack in the United States that could be used similar to what was used against that European patent. The European opposition hasn't ended yet. The evidence is pretty much already there. So if some U.S. company like Motif wanted to see if there was a possible line of attack using the evidence that was submitted in Europe, that's already available.
0: If Impossible Foods loses, do its patents become questionable? Are there more lawsuits? If they lose
3: the case, depends on the grounds they'd lose the case. They could lose it because judge or jury court determines that the motif product doesn't really infringe. It's just not covered by the impossible foods patent. So in that respect, it would have some impact, but not serious impact on the rest of portfolio. But suppose the court finds that the impossible foods patent is invalid because it covers prior art. It's either anticipated by or it's obvious over prior art. If it gets knocked down because of prior art, maybe that prior art is potentially impactful against the other parts of the portfolio of Impossible Foods, because the current patent that's in the lawsuit is drafted in one way, and it focuses on certain elements. So the prior art could knock out that patent And maybe that prior art would be useful to attack other claims and other patents owned by Impossible Foods. But their portfolio is pretty broad. It might not have that much of an impact because they have a lot of different patents claiming the subject matter in lots of different ways. But this is one of the broader ones, I think, to the product itself. So potentially it could have an impact, but they have a lot of other patents in their portfolio that would still be standing.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Leonard Svensson of Birch, Stewart, Kolash, and Birch. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Rosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.